This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at afsp.org slash talkawaythedark. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. It's Friday, and that means it's time to look back at the week and make sense of the biggest local and statewide stories in our weekly news recap. Stories like these. The Ventra app melting down on a day Metra is rolling out a new fare structure. The app keeps failing. A third weekday commute with Ventra app ticketing issues. It's been a week since Lurie Children's Hospital's phone and internet services went offline. Doctors are using pen and paper. Protesters will be allowed to set up just outside the Democratic National Convention in Chicago this summer, despite opposition from Democratic officials. That's due to a technicality. The city failed to respond to an application by the Poor People's Army within its own 10-day deadline. This week, our panel includes Amanda Vinicky, correspondent for Chicago Tonight on WTTW, Alex Nitkin of the Better Government Association. He's a government finance and accountability reporter for the Illinois Answers Project. And Simone Alisea, executive producer of the CityCast Chicago podcast and newsletter. Amanda started with the ongoing situation at Lurie Children's Hospital. Its communications network has been shut down for over a week after it was accessed by a, quote, known criminal threat actor. Here's Amanda. I don't know who that might be or what that might be other than that it is known. Hopefully not ever to me. Uh, It is scary to just think about on a personal level how you're systems could get hacked, let alone when it is something like a children's hospital. So how cruel, first of all, uh, I did speak with a cybersecurity expert who said, you know, Lurie is a well-funded hospital. This isn't a, you know, small operation that is unaware of what's at stake. They, he doesn't know the ins and outs of what protections they previously had in place, but Sure, there were some. And I think that's where, you know, you have a lot of parents who have sort of the attitude, this could happen anywhere to anybody. Mm -hmm. And this proves and shows that. Um, What do we we know so far about how it's affecting patients and how the staff are coping? Well, so I I will speak, actually, um, my sweet little babe had to get shots today. So I came right from there and it is not at the hospital, but, you know, a Lurie connected facility. And they're working off of papers. I mean, it is strange. I have another friend who unfortunately had to take her child to Lurie to the ER. Baby's fine. Um, But uh, had literally like a paper bracelet instead of one of the printed out plastic ones. Mm. I mean, they are literally dealing with paper. So there are signs that say things might be slow. Please be patient with us. And yet it continues. I think the question and the, the fear is, what sort of medical history could be revealed if, say, the expectation is that this is ransomware, if Lurie doesn't 
pay the ransom or the, this isn't resolved. Uh, it, it literally is that like Lurie's is being held hostage is the really the presumption and why the typically you have these criminal actors doing that. And then is that going to harm patients because there is going to be a difficulty in accessing their medical histories? Will there be delays in surgeries and care that need to happen? Mm -hmm. Um, Again, because all this is offline. So uh, cybersecurity experts say that likely, and this is not something we know from Lurie, that there is a backup to all of the information. It's just that when the systems are shut down, that you're not going to know it. So for example, when I went to my appointment today, it was, what is she here for? Something that they would presumably know right. every other time because it's right up there on the appointment. Uh, it's it's scary. Like they legit did not know why mm-hmm. she was there. But I will add real quick, I'm sorry, just to move on, but um, I, that the people who I know who have really come into contact with the hospital itself mm-hmm. say that the staff has been incredible, that they're tired, but are really thankful. This is, of course, a lot of high stress situations. You go into a children's hospital, it can be incredibly heartbreaking yes. on a good day um, and that they are working very hard to resolve this and yeah. just to take care of families. I mean, Simone, I was going to ask you the same thing. I mean, I, I know black hat hackers aren't the good guys, but a, a children's hospital? Right. Come <laughs> on. Is that really where you want to go? I, I, I think I think, too, the other thing that's really um, uh, even more stressful and frustrating about this particular attack, in addition to the fact, uh, in addition to who the target was, is just the fact that it's gone on so long, right? This isn't a one-day outage, a two-day outage. We're going we're going on two weeks now mm-hmm. um, where, you know, patients and families are not able to access the stuff they're accessing, where we're not sure what the, what the re- end result is going to be, kind of how it's going to get cleared up. And, and then, as Amanda said, you know, what may or may not be revealed or has been compromised in the process yeah. Um, and it, yeah just a really just a really stressful situation all around. Cyber pros say that you're not supposed to give in to the ransom asks mm. because even if you do pay let's say the the big bucks that they might be asking for yeah. there's no telling that they'll be like alright you paid now just wait try again. Mm. I mean it is such a difficult situation yeah Yeah. i mean alex we've sometimes we've seen small town governments or small businesses face you know ransomware attacks and uh, you know a hacker locks employees out of systems i I can't remember a time i've seen a a chicago institution as big as lurie's go through something like this i mean it is really crippling and can i think that people underestimate the amount of time that it takes to pick up the pieces from this kind of thing Coincidentally, I was about to bring them up uh, this office a little bit later when we talk about the primary, but the Cook County clerk of the circuit court, some folks might remember, I think it was maybe two years ago or so, they were hit by a big ransomware attack, and they had to rebuild for months and months and redesign their website. And we're talking about all of the court records in the whole county. Um, and so, The Illinois Attorney General's office? That's right. They were, too. I uh-huh. mean, it, it really, um, it, it uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe this, this the takeaway well, is that, these institutions need to maybe get better at Bulk trying up. to mm-hmm. learn cybersecurity or well, strengthen their infrastructure. And it's interesting because you, you brought up how crippling it is in, in the now, but also long term. There are issues such as undermining yes. I think, consumer confidence. Um, and then there is also the question of litigation, ins- what insurance is or is not going to pay. So actually, interestingly, Fitch just put something out that says, for now, the Lurie Children Hospital credit rating isn't impacted, but this could be a huge long-term budget hit. Did you get any sense of how much longer it might go on for? We we don't know. Yeah. It began the 31st, and In Lurie initially didn't really say 
that what it was. Um, it, we have since learned as of just yesterday, actually, that this was a, quote, known criminal actor and the FBI is on it. Wow. All right, folks, from one yikes to another, uh, Simone, Metro Riders, they've been having a heck of a time in the last week, haven't they? Uh, yeah, yeah. So if people might recall there was some talk about the changes to Metro's fare structure, right, going from 10 zones to four zones and, and the elimination of ticket windows. So as that was going into effect, the Venture app, where you're supposed to be able to buy tickets online, it it just was not working. People could not access tickets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was on the, the very first day last week. Uh, and then... They thought it was fixed over the weekend. You know, morning Monday morning commute comes around, app shuts down again, and yeah. it's not working. And, and yeah, I was riders, trying to load fare for my kids mm-hmm. <laughs> to get to school and not working. Yeah, I mean, we looked it up uh, on that morning, too, and it was like trying to get from Hyde Park to, to Millennium Park, and it was like no tickets available on a Monday morning during commute time. And I'm like, <laughs> really? That seems unlikely. I don't think that's right. Uh, and I think it is, you know, this is not as, um, it, it sounds like the, the service has been restored and people have been able to, you know, for the most part, um, get into what they need to later this or later this week. But I think it's just really frustrating. As I said, when you're trying to get to work or wherever it is you need to get mm-hmm. to, you know, you, and also on top of it all, you might be dealing with the, the ticket price increase depending on like what route you're taking and how far you're going. Because quite a few changes yes, were, yes. were made by Metro. Exactly. Um, like I said, the, the, the switching of zones, there was also um, an elimination of a, of a low fare uh, discount that was, that was enacted during the pandemic on the Metro Electric and Rock Island lines. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think just a, a frustrating, frustrating start to this week, Sasha, all around. Frustrating start to this recap. I mean, anyone else here a regular Metro rider? Once upon a time, not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I think that this comes as, of course, public transit systems are really in a hard mm-hmm. way especially and you have metro. especially metra and you have folks it's connected of course to a lot of work from home and the vacancy rates at offices downtown and so this comes at a tough time and as their hands are most certainly out for money pr- from from the state as you have the regional transit systems collectively asking for an implementation of a sales tax on services they want that money so it, it, I don't think it's engendering any great will I don't know that long term this is going to change that ask, but um, it is, I think, frustrating. Again, it, it undermines confidence in these systems at a time where they're trying to say, no, no, please remember us, take us. Well, and the whole point of restructuring the fare system was to attract new riders after a pandemic dip in, in, in ridership, right? It was like, oh, we're simplifying this. You know, we're making it easier to buy tickets online. You don't have to, you know, it's not that sort of old-fashioned train ticket window it's thing. kind uh, of like, you know, technology. The, we, mm-hmm. the more that we depend on it, the less you can depend oh, on absolutely. it. Oh, absolutely. And Simone, you at CityCast, you had put out a call to your listeners to, to hear some issues that folks we're having anything else they uh, shared you, you know we haven't heard uh from any listeners uh, specifically but if you're listening to to bez and you want to let us know i mean we you can find our email on the website <laughs> uh, but but i do think it is something that that metro writers uh, around the region have um you know have have certainly spoken about and have uh been like i said been frustrated by that's the word the word of the day is <laughs> frustration. frustration all right so in case folks haven't figured it out yet the theme for this first part of our recap is glitches and snafus and frustration. Uh, Alex, why don't you tell us what's going on with the Poor People's Army and the Democratic National Convention? 
Yeah, the Poor People's Army is one of many groups that, uh, you know, a protest advocacy group that has tried to uh, get in line to hold demonstrations outside of the DNC, which I think is, you know, common and natural and to be expected. I think, if anything, what is a little bit surprising to me, at least, is that the city of Chicago is really making efforts to try and um, prevent those kinds of protests. And there has been some... I think kind of breathless reporting about how this poor people's army somehow managed to get a permit to protest. And isn't this going to be embarrassing because the eyes of the world are on Chicago. And I'm kind of like, I don't know, how is there not going to be protests? (laughs) This is like the most visible political event in the country. And this is Chicago where like open air protests are like visible or like breathable air in this city. They're like part of the architecture of the city. And I think that people have been talking about like, Oh, is, does this mean it's going to be like the chaos of the 1968 convention when there were, you know, protests and riots and North Mm -hmm. Vietnamese flags and Grant Park. I would just remind people that a huge part of, I think, the shame around Chicago from the 1968 convention is not necessarily the breadth of the, like, First Amendment activity, but the really brutal, repressive efforts that the city took to try and quell that when the mayor of Chicago literally gave a public order to the Chicago police to shoot rioters. Mm. Um, I think that in that context, uh, it, it... frankly to me is a little bit silly to be talking about trying to like prevent especially you know a group like this we're talking about probably a couple dozen maybe a couple hundred people chanting outside of the united center with Mm -hmm. like millions of people around i don't see things have been worse you know i'm gonna say that somebody who's been to these conventions to me the the question is going to be how close are they going to get whether the city permits them or not and what are the feds going to say about that sure. I, I think your point is very well taken in terms of the the rights of free speech and the shame of chicago in terms of repressing that and what came of it in 68 and there's certainly a recognition i think by both city officials and dnc organizers still in order to get anywhere near the convention, you have to go through metal detectors. I mean, there is a mm-hmm. process. There is a perimeter and a perimeter and a perimeter to get even close. Wow. And so I think as we get near that point, yes, there will be these these local permits, but there's a whole other layer that we're just not at. Um, there, there will be some sort of arena for protesters, I am mm-hmm. sure, because Democrats in particular would get a lot of flack right, if that, that, that wasn't a, that double-edged sword exactly. of like, oh, you aren't you the party of exactly? It will happen. I just think it's a, it's going to be as we get closer. A question of where that's where it's sort of the egg on the face of Chicago yeah, and missing it, a deadline. And to your point, mm. I mean, we've got tens of thousands of people who are going to be in town for this uh, convention. This is August. 19th to the 22nd, otherwise known as my birthday weekend, but uh, <laughs> not Happy important. Birthday. That's not why important. it's going to be so busy. <laughs> they're coming to celebrate me. No, they're not. Uh, but I'm wondering, though, as a resident, how disruptive y'all think this is going to be for everyday Chicagoans? I mean, anyone a little worried? Simone, what I, are thinking? I, I mean, it, it can't not be. It's it's, a, it's a thousands of people. It's a, it's a big event. But like, you know, so was NASCAR. NASCAR was also really disruptive, and uh, we we made it through that. You we know, did. I mean, like Chicago is is no stranger to hosting massive events. We oh, Lollapalooza attracts how many thousands of people every year downtown? Uh, and so, yes, it will be frustrating. There will be traffic. It will be disruptive. Probably there will be protests, and there will be many many headlines, and it will like be visible for people. I think throughout that time, and as we get into the summer, but I I think. 
you know, we got to step, take a step back and say, that's always true in the summer <laughs> in Chicago on some level. If we can handle all those suburban teenagers. We can handle whatever the Democratic Party I think so. Way. I think so. <laughs> Now we turn to politics. Primary day in Illinois is now less than 40 days away. Now, if you're voting in person, polls will open at 6 a.m. on March 19th, but early and mail-in voting start much earlier. Here's Amanda with more on the major races. I'll start with issues. I think that's a huge one, and that is going to be the, quote, bring Chicago home, the mansion tax, whatever you want to call it. And this is an effort by the Johnson administration and advocates for doing something about homelessness to bring more money and attention to that cause by raising the tax on high-priced real estate transfer tax transactions. So that's basically when um, when, when you sell a building, there, there's a tax on that. And this would be um, something that the business community is really pushing up against because they say that that will harm small businesses, any sort of big buildings where, as I previously mentioned, the vacancy rates. Um, and so you were going to expect a high dollar campaign. I don't think that you're going to have, per se, homeowners who have million dollar homes being part of that campaign. But um, then the, the, on the other side, of course, you're going to have the homeless advocates who have been advocating for something to be done and more money for that cause for quite some time. Mm -hmm. So that, that's really a huge one. Um, there are no real statewide races. There are some of the things that I'm keeping my eye on include the Cook County State's Attorney's race because that's one that's likely to be settled in yep. the primary. Also, there is an area um, here in the city where there is a Supreme Court seat that is up for grabs on the state's high court. And you're really seeing that as um, something that is turned into, yes, experience, but also um, whether there will be a, the first Latino elected to the Illinois Supreme Court and what that means for the current um, black justice who holds the seat now uh, competitive congressional races including whether Danny Davis will hold on to his seat and then downstate you have one where um, it's conservative versus conservative but just you know sort of how conservative and that would be the GOP former nominee for governor um, Darren Bailey trying to take a seat from incumbent Mike Bost who himself has secured some endorsements that are um, pretty again conservative leaning and yeah. has more money Alex, you say the race for Cook County Clerk of the, the Circuit Court is flying under the radar. So why don't you take a moment and tell us about the role and why you think folks should pay attention? That's right. Um, not to be confused with the Cook County Clerk, uh, <laughs> because, of course, this has to be confusing. The Cook County Clerk of the Circuit Court is responsible for a multi-hundred million dollar agency with hundreds of employees whose responsibility is overseeing all of the labyrinthine court records. Anytime you file a lawsuit... Um, in the, or, you know, staff a, a courtroom um, in Cook County, anywhere, it is all being overseen by the clerk of the circuit court. This is an office that was run um, by a person named Dorothy Brown for 20 years from 2000 to 2020, who was really bogged down with all kinds of accusations of corruption and mismanagement and patronage and just so many things going wrong and really, I think, tanked the reputation of the court system. And for the last uh, three years now, um, the clerk of the circuit court has been Iris Martinez, who has been really trying to turn things around, uh, has a couple of accomplishments under her belt, um, uh, most notably, I think, getting the Shackman uh, patronage federal monitor off of the, the backs of the clerk of the circuit court. Mm -hmm. But they, they really are facing a lot of pressure from 
activists, from outsiders, from folks like the, the Appleseed Center for Fair Courts have really been on our case and sort of talking about how things have been kind of slow. One issue that we, especially at the BGA, are following really closely is, you know, she campaigned on uh, changing the state law so that court records in Cook County would be subject to FOIA, so that journalists like us could FOIA for public court records, which right. seems like a no-brainer. Um, she had campaigned on that, but then Iris Martinez kind of turned around and settled for what she called a compromise, which was a really watered-down, basically ineffective version of that. And so she has a challenger named Mariana Sparopoulos, who's been endorsed by the Cook County Democratic Party and a lot of sort of movers and shakers. She's been a member of the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District who is posing herself as a sort of a new competence turnaround candidate. So there's a lot at stake there, mm, okay. and I would encourage folks to read up more about it. I'm glad you told us all about that. Any other races that uh, you folks have your eye on, Simone? You know, uh, I think Amanda and Alex covered the specific races, but one thing I always encourage people to do is because we do have judicial vacancies that are going to be on this ballot, um, mm -hmm. and it's always worth looking those up because, you know, you are more likely to encounter a judge in your day-to-day -day life than you are your congressperson, right? And so I always encourage folks to, um, Injustice Watch always puts out a great judicial guide where you yeah. can yeah. see your see where you are. Shout out to judges. Judges. Yeah. Yeah. Your judges. Yeah. And you know, I'll, I'll add too, there are some contested again, so many, particularly within the city limits of Chicago contests that are really decided in the primary. It's mm -hmm. going to be a Democrat mm -hmm. versus a Democrat. And mm -hmm. whoever wins that, that's it. So the race is in March. And if you're in one of those areas, Check it out. I, I'll, yeah, shout out. We WTTW has an extensive voter guide that was just published this week, well ahead of this early voting, so you can check it out. So does um, WBEZ.org. So yes, I mean, I there's, shout out there's, as well. right, there's so many uh, places to really watch and see those things. And some of these um, primaries won't necessarily get into the specifics right here and now, but um, we will be doing some of that. Check it out because those are decisive. Mm -hmm. You all recently covered on CityCast what people need to know about how to vote. Yes. Simone, any major takeaways or, or pieces of advice you want to There's always, I, I always like have like a few things I always remind people because I feel like people forget. Number one in the primary, right? You have to pull a party primary um, or if you feel some type of way about pulling a Democratic or Republican ballot, you can also pull a nonpartisan ballot if, for example, you wanted to just vote on bring home, bring Chicago home, right? That is a way that you can vote on that without having to pull the party ballot. Um, Mail-in ballots, which is the way I vote. I vote by mail. I'm on the permanent vote by mail roster. Okay. Um, those are mailed out this week, uh, and early voting is starting at the super site downtown is starting next week, and then in all 50 wards, and then so on and so forth until right. we get to election day. Um, but yeah, and the other thing I always say too is voter register. We have same day voter registration in Illinois, uh, so you know it is it is never too late. Truly, yeah. any at any point you might be thinking about voting and you want to register, there is a way for you to do it. I promise. I promise there is. So you vote by mail. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious how everyone else is going about it. WBEZ's Tony Arnold was on earlier this week to talk about WBEZ's uh, voter guide, and he says he likes to go in the middle of the day on election day. Mm -hmm. Alex, you? that used to be me. Uh, what I would do is like on my way into work, I would go on election day to my local precinct. It was always a breeze. Um, Nowadays, I you know, the mail-in voting, it's just too easy. It's just too convenient. I can do it over the course of days if I want to. I can mm -hmm. have all of my research I mean, that's what in it's front there of for. Me. Those voter guides right there the at your fingertips. WTTW <laughs> so on true. one side, BEZ voter guide on the other side, Love switching it. back and forth. <laughs> I My advice to people always is, thankfully, like in Illinois and in Chicago, it's very easy to vote compared to a lot of places. Um, but the one thing I would recommend people not do is early vote the day before the election. 
because hmm. there are always lines because there are fewer places, but everyone's like, oh, I want to early vote. But now is the time that I'm thinking about it. There are lines mm. early voting the day before. Any other time you do it, it's going to be a breeze. My other tip, too, is you can actually, you can bring your phone into the voting booth. Mm -hmm. You do not have to, like, make all your decisions beforehand and feel like you have to memorize anything. You can bring paper. You can bring your phone. So you, it's not cheating. You can bring all that stuff in. And I don't like to vote too early. I mean, Illinois has made it so incredibly accessible and given all of this time. To me, I, I want to know, particularly, again, when you have a tight contest there's a lot that could come out journalists are still investigating and still on it you're going to have potential news coming out um i know we'll talk about trump later i expect he'll be on the illinois ballot who knows we'll talk about that there's some litigation going on so what do i know i'm not an attorney but i mean there, there's a lot that can still happen at this junk between this juncture and march 19th well amanda you guessed it the time is now to talk about trump because at this point here we go he will be on the ballot in illinois and a cook county judge denied a bid by Trump to stall an objection to his candidacy in Illinois until after the U.S. Supreme Court rules whether he's constitutionally eligible to seek re-election. So what's the significance of this, right? Now there's not going to be a delay, right? There, there's not going to be a delay, but it's also not expedited. So as we've been talking about, I mean, you, you can, th these ballots are getting mailed out. And so Trump's name will be on them, which is why you had the folks who are seeking to have him off say, we need the Illinois court system to hurry and take this. And the Illinois court system's like, nah. Um, so we, we don't have any um, answers. They're not holding it up, I think, in part because the, the case behind this, there is um, a, a, there are additional questions outside of Trump that might be settled. And for example, the State Board of Election in ruling that the former president should be allowed to run again in Illinois said that the questions at hand here are such that they should be settled more on in the courts and on a federal level because they're constitutional and are outside of the scope of what the state Board of Elections should be handling. Mm -hmm. That's a question that we might see resolved through what happens in Illinois, regardless of yesterday's arguments and what the U.S. Supreme Court takes of that. Yeah. Uh, speaking of yesterday's arguments, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court uh, heard arguments on Colorado's decision to keep Trump off the ballot in that state. Now, experts say that it appears the court will reject a challenge to Trump's eligibility. And that decision is expected soon. Alex, what do you make of that? I mean, this really is the culmination of so many different challenges based on this specific um, reading of the 14th Amendment, which was uh, written into the Constitution right after the Civil War, basically in order to prevent former Confederate uh, leaders from running for office, saying that if you have engaged in an insurrection, you cannot uh, hold office. And so a lot of challengers have looked at that and said, well, what was January 6th, if not an insurrection? And how, you know, obviously Donald Trump was a huge part in that, if not the main instigator. Um, and, you know, there have been decisions going back and forth, Colorado, and I think Maine also ruled to keep him off the ballot. But yeah, we heard the arguments in front of the Supreme Court, which I think is going to settle this once and for all, one way or another, for everywhere. And what it sounded like the Supreme Court is leaning toward is the same thing that the Illinois Board of Elections said and the same thing that Cook County Judge Tracy Porter said and so many other judges in the system, which is, we are not touching this. We are not going to be the ones, regardless of the merits of the, the case, we are not going to be the ones to kick Trump off of the ballot. Yeah. Um, and so in, it sounds like I'm no, you know, Supreme Court expert, but it sounds like the only real suspense around the Supreme Court case is whether it is going to be an eight to one decision or a unanimous decision to let him stay on the ballot. Um, 
It is important to remember, though, that this is not the only legal challenge to Trump that is pending right now or even before the Supreme Court. Not at all. Um, I'm watching the um, challenge uh, over whether he, as a former president, is thus immune from all prosecution. That uh, a circuit, excuse me, a court of appeals, federal appeals court, came out with this really, you know, scathing opinion, basically saying, no, of course, he's not immune from prosecution. Mm -hmm. And Trump is appealing to the Supreme Court. And a lot of folks, I mean, it's basically um, impossible to imagine that the Supreme Court would side with him on that. The yeah. only question is whether the Supreme Court will take it up, which would delay his other cases. Well, this week, Nevada held both its Republican primary and its Republican caucuses. In the primary, Trump wasn't on the ballot, but former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley finished second to the none of these candidates option. Now, there was this interesting piece out from the Center for Illinois Politics on, on whether the Chicago suburbs is a place where Haley could actually win in that you've got a, a more moderate Republican electorate there. Any thoughts on that? You, I mean, I will just, you're, you yourself just said that Nikki Haley lost by a resounding margin to none of these candidates. None of these None of these candidates, candidates 2024. Yeah. Um, I, like, I think that it's uh, wishful thinking is putting it generously to think that she <laughs> still has a chance. Like, oh, she lost everywhere else, including like New Hampshire, which is where all the independent voters are by wide margin. But she's got a great maybe, shot in the Chicago maybe suburbs. Maybe Rolling Meadows is where she's going to make her <laughs> Rolling Meadows. comeback. Maybe Schaumburg is where she, you know, starts her road to the presidency. It, it will likely be, barring... Who knows what happens with court cases, in which case you could have an entirely changed dynamic. Again, why I don't like to vote too early. You, mm. you don't know. But presumably the contest will be over by the time it gets to Illinois. So it's a non-question. Um, I will point out Haley didn't campaign in the primary in the whole question of primary versus caucus and having two times in New Hampshire. And there was a very, very low turnout. I mean, so the whole or New Hampshire, I'm sorry, in Vegas and Nevada, Nevada. Um, it, it, it's sort of a bizarre situation in general. But um, we, we have seen, I think, in the suburbs, they have gone more blue. And again, this is a primary, so you have to choose whether you're going to pull a Democratic or a Republican ballot in the first place. Yeah. Let's talk state politics before we take a pause here, Amanda. Legislators got to work in Springfield this week on a number of issues. Among the biggest, they took up the tipped minimum wage Briefly tell us what's going on there. So we know that Chicago has decided to do away with this, which means that every the servers who used to say primarily are bartenders that really relied on tips to get to the full minimum wage instead need to be paid that by their paycheck. Uh, and so there is an effort to take that statewide. I will add that this is not a new effort. This is something where folks have been campaigning in Illinois for Springfield to do that for, gosh, I think the first time I heard it was maybe 20 years ago that this was an ask to do away with the tip minimum wage. So it isn't new, but it has certainly been a resurged plan because of what happened in Chicago. What you're seeing, however, is a lot of pushback because those who live downstate say, we aren't Chicago. Um, it is very different for communities that are, say, 
on the border or for areas that are in central and downstate Illinois where they're, they're struggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know. It is early in the session. We've had just a, really a couple of weeks of meeting uh, and very much legislators are in campaign mode eyeing both that primary and the general election. And legislators are expected to weigh in on Chicago's elected school board. First, why would state lawmakers be talking about that? It's up to them to make these sort of determinations. So uh, it it is also, they they gave themselves really the assignment. They they (laughs) wanted to take it on and they gave themselves a deadline for figuring out what needs to happen with the Chicago School Board. Do we um, have any sense of what they'll do? We we don't yet. The mayor has come out and the Sun-Times reported that Mayor Johnson is on the side of it. The big question is, how many seats will Chicago voters be deciding? And will that be the full 20 seat board or will it be half of that? And for now, for now, for now, eventually it'll get to the fully elected board. Um, And so you have a standoff sort of where there are some, including the powerful president of the Senate that is had been on the half train and now wants for initially that first board to be wholly elected. And then you have the opposite where the Chicago Teachers Union and, of course, Johnson being part of that had Mm -hmm. previously wanted a wholly elected board. And now, lo and behold, when, oh, wait, he's in power, say that they only want half of the seats to be chosen by voters this time around. Are you getting whiplash listening to this, Simone? Because we've been covering this, and I think this is one of the most frustrating um, sort of people pieces of news that we've been following at CityCast for, for the past few years, because again, you have that whiplash, you have that flip, and it is, you know, right, as Johnson gets into power, he, right, he clears out the old school board, appoints a bunch of new people, has been getting a bunch of stuff done that he wanted to get done, right? Uh, and now we have this elected school board that is looming. This election is supposed to happen in November, and voters have no idea what they're going to be voting on yet or how it's supposed to work or where their district is, and you have candidates who have no idea... If they can even run. If they can even run or where they're supposed to run or what they're running for. Nice. And it's, it's, it's just such a mess about how we're going to run you know, the state's largest school district, one of the largest school districts in the country. country. I don't know. It, it just it just is really frustrating As you're teaching to me. To le- like about civics lessons yes. and democracy, yes. it really is a poor showing. We're all learning together. <laughs> Up next, Simone had the latest around the growing urgency around asylum seekers to the city. Governor J.B. Pritzker, Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle, and Mayor Brandon Johnson all met at City Hall earlier this week to discuss the issue. Here's Simone. A lot has been made about um, Governor Pritzker and Mayor Johnson's relationship throughout the, the this crisis and the influx of migrants that have come to Chicago. Um, but, uh, you know, we got news this week that, that all three of these leaders are meeting. Um, Johnson said afterwards, you know, that you know, they're, they're coming together, right? They're all working together. Mission's going to take all of us. We've all got to work together. Um, what that will actually look like, that's a great question. Um, Axios also reported this week that um, Chicago is going to be, uh, is working on trying to merge its homelessness services with with migrant services, right? Trying to, to those agencies that, that do, uh, that work with both populations, mm-hmm. um, trying to get more coordination on that front. Um, so we are seeing some movement, but of course, 
we have some deadlines coming up at, after Mayor Johnson pushed back the the deadline to evict uh, migrants who are staying in city-run shelters. That's mm -hmm. going to start coming up in March. And so, you know, you have folks who are looking for housing, struggling to find housing. You have a state program that can help with housing, but it's, you know, how much is that going to do? Are they going to build any more shelters? There's still a lot of questions that we just don't have answers to. A lot of questions. And, and despite the nearly 35,000 migrants that have arrived here in the last year and a half or so, we should note the number of buses that have arrived recently has actually dropped dramatically. Now, you know, some days we didn't see any arrive at all, uh, though the city is it does expect for that to change when it warms up outside and, and when we get closer to the DNC, which, of course, we're hosting. So I, I'm curious what you think, Amanda, is the Texas governor biding his time until the DNC? You know, I unfortunately have tried to reach out to Greg Abbott's office and have not received much communication back. I think I, I got one response in the various attempts to get reaction from uh, the Texas governor's office. So I don't know, but that's certainly the speculation. It is very clearly political uh, that there are migrants being sent to cities and to states that are controlled by Democrats that have sanctuary status. And Abbott has been very equivocal that that's intentional, saying that, oh, yeah, you believe that you want to welcome and be a welcoming city, be a welcoming state. This is what it means. These are the issues that we're facing along the border. So it is intentional. And I think that um, there is no question that we are going to see an attempt to really make this difficult for President Biden and for any Democrat. If you're just tuning in, it's Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We're going behind the headlines in the weekly news recap with Amanda Vinicky of WTTW's Chicago Tonight, Simone Alisea of CityCast Chicago, and Alex Nitkin of the Better Government Association. Alex, let's move on to sports. The White Sox could be moving from their ballpark in Bridgeport to the South Loop. Yeah. Uh, it, it, <laughs> <laughs> it could be. So, um, I said Next it story. Like, okay. Um, yeah. yeah it, it, it's sort of a, a sports story, but the reason why I love it is because it's really a real estate and public story so see what we did there uh yeah um so uh okay so this past week related midwest which is the um developer that owns this area um bound by uh roosevelt cermak clark street and the south branch of the chicago river it is this barren stretch of undeveloped land very close to downtown um well it's not barren anymore because in 2019 um related midwest um bought it, rezoned it, uh, and unveiled this big, sparkling um, uh, mega development proposal called the 78, called because it's going to be the 78th Chicago neighborhood, a whole new neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And um, this past week, we got some renderings, some really nice looking yeah, renderings. Did you see them? Oh, I saw them from the White Sox and Related Midwest showing what a new ballpark would look like in the middle of the 78. And I mean, it looks really cool. It's like a new, uh, it's, it's, it's flashy, it's surrounded by all these, you know, apartments and bars and everything and would have like thousands of new apartments and including like a thousand new affordable apartments um a pet peeve of mine about both wrigley field and um guaranteed rate right now is that that they're both like faced away from downtown so you can't see downtown and the skyline from mm -hmm. there and so i have to admit it was very satisfying to see these renderings of like mm. you're sitting in the stands behind home plate and like sears tower willis tower is like right so, there well i want you to while we're on the topic give us some top level takeaways here like what looks from your view to be the pros and the cons of the team moving 
and a major ballpark in, in the South Loop. Besides the skyline view. Yeah. <laughs> well, obviously that's the most important. So I think that it's arguably like there aren't really any cons that you can think of to like the plan itself. It yeah. looks really nice. The aldermen have said like, yeah, if we can pull this off, it looks great. What they're pitching is just like it's utopian. It's just like they're developing. But the con would be Bridgeport. to the existing neighborhood, right? I mean, it would be the existing that neighborhood would be, in Bridgeport. What's well, yeah. interesting is that their proposal is to turn the existing guaranteed rate field into a soccer stadium where the Chicago Fire would play. They would develop that. And so it's like everything is happy. Everyone's happy in theory. The con is that, like, someone's got to pay for all of this, obviously. Yeah. Um, and in, like, my hackles went up when I was reading about this when the White Sox and Related were like, this is going to create $10 billion in economic benefit. And, like, it's going to be create so much money. Usually when um, organizations or teams especially are saying something like that, it's because they are about to say, please give us some public money so that we can make this happen. Yeah. And so that's what everyone's watching for. Well, uh, something else that you you joked, actually, uh, Alex, was the, the biggest story of the week, aside from the, the skyline. Uh, Barnes & Noble, it, it's uh, planting a flag in Wicker Park. I'm curious if you were surprised that Barnes & Noble was still opening bookstores. I was very surprised. I was very pleasantly surprised. Um, I, I had been under the impression that Barnes & Noble was sort of dying out everywhere. I have been, you know, for years mourning the um, loss of the Webster and Clybourne Barnes & Noble. Same. My daughter, too. I, I, yes. just, I just love to go and just, like, hang out there, we, pick some books so off the shelf. So many mother-daughter dates there. Aww. Yeah. That's really nice. That That's was our nice. thing, and she would get a drink hot beverage would sit down <laughs> yeah we don't know if there's going to be a cafe like there, there's no real information right, but i, I will so. say but you you've got to imagine that there would be or that they'll do something cool with well, that old bank vault yeah, they're, they're and opening there are local bookstores nearby mm. so you can do kind of a whole book route well perhaps. here's the thing you bring up a good if it point it doesn't hurt them yeah. you bring up a good point because they barnes is opening four locations but that one in wicker park it's notable because it's like within earshot of quite a few independent bookstores I don't see those shops as being happy about this big corporate bookstore coming on in. I had town. that same thought when I when when I, we were talking about this because uh, I saw this news and people seemed to be really excited and shared also like I also have like nostalgic Barnes and Noble uh, memories as well. But I was like, there's so many great bookstores over there. Why? Are we, I don't know. It's I, am I the only one who thinks it's weird to celebrate the the coming of a major box bookstore? I celebrate whenever a vacant space is filled Fair with enough. something Fair because there's way too much a of it. Unfortunately, especially. Exactly. I mean, we were all kind of dismayed when that Walgreens closed there with the big vitamin vault, and so now the question is: Will it be yeah. like the young adult vault? Will it be the, the band book know, vault? I saw a suggestion. I kind of like that. Um, we're just happy that books are making a comeback. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I would also just like to point out that this is the exact plot of the book of the movie you've got oh, you've mail. got oh, such a good movie except for i like, hope it doesn't comedy. end that way so like shout out to volumes myopic oh, yeah. they are still wonderful get a book from each go read them at one <laughs> of the many independent or chain coffee shops <laughs> <laughs> all right so after thousands and thousands of submissions chicago's second annual snowplow naming contest is over i want to read you the top six winners here control salt delete <laughs> yeah. Casimir Plowowski, Skilling It, Ernie Snowbanks, Mies Bandersnow, and Bad Bad Leroy Plow. <laughs> Which one gets your vote, Amanda? I, they're all so good. I love it. I was impressed. I actually spent way too much time looking over all of the entries, and there are so many good ones. It was hard to choose. I mean, since evidently all of Chicago right now is um, celebrating Skilling upon his retirement. Yes. Gotta say, Skilling It is just fun to say. Skilling so it. I'll go with Skilling It for mm -hmm. today.
I, I, my favorite one was Control Salt Delete. The minute I saw it, I that really just like made me chuckle, and I think it works. Uh, I think it works visually. I think it works auditorily. It's Our not, senior, pro- the Chicago tie-in though. Our know? senior yeah, producer like- Meha loves Ernie Snowbanks. So yeah. shout out to mm-hmm. Ernie Snowbanks that I gets f- a vote. I feel like there were so many on the like long finalist list that just got robbed. That I were know. so much better. There is well, uh, Chance the Chance the Sweeper. We don't need to name more City things. Of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> City of This is like the second Kevin recap McPlowister. where I've tried to you know give it some I'm love. I like Kevin McPlowister. The that panelists was, just oh, shoot it down. Good. Bicycle Jordan is a pretty good one. <laughs> <laughs> there, um, there were so many good ones. That's why so do we have to stop? How many plows are there? Snow or Whacker Drive. Here's the thing about the snow. The naming the snowplow that that uh, our host Jacoby Cochran brought up is like, are these also the same snowplows that they use to like block protesters? Like, do these snow mm-hmm. these snowplows have the same name? Like, but now they're going to be blocked by the unslushables, so it'll be <laughs> cute and like fun. Oh sure, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that that's the idea. Uh, before we, before we go here, we got about uh, thirty seconds. Uh, quick, tell me what you're working on next week. Simone. Uh, next week, we have a, a, a punchki taste test uh, coming out. That is going to be really, really good. Or no, we did that this week. Oh, my God. We have a, a dumpling taste test coming Ooh. out for Lunar New Year. Nice. I don't I know. know what days are. Okay, I want to be covering <laughs> punchki and dumplings. Can I please go and be part of what CityCast is? Um, what am I doing? I'm going to be getting out, as I said, that we're looking into some of these primary contests that would be of, of interest to Chicago Silly voters. question. And Alex, real quick. I'm going to be watching City Council Business. They're probably hopefully maybe finally going to be looking at the uh, ordinance reigning in dollar stores and where they can open. So that's going to be the big chatter. All right. Well, that's it for the weekly news recap. My thanks to journalists Alex Nitkin, Amanda Vinicky, and Simone Alisea. Have a great weekend, folks. Thanks. Thanks, you too. This episode of the Reset Podcast was produced by Dan Tucker and Meha Ahmed edited the episode. It was mixed by Brenda Ruiz. If you enjoy our weekly news recap, subscribe to the Reset Pod so that you'll never miss the next one. From city and state politics to national and international news, we have you covered with the latest information, sharing all different kinds of perspectives and keeping you in the know and in the loop. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. I'm your host, Sasha Ann Simons. Check out our podcast feed tomorrow for a special Saturday pod. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.